experiences is what she called them. I found myself attracted to the pretzel and the chocolate because just a real quick crunch and a real quick sweet, and it was just like the best of both worlds. But naturally, I think I, I lean a little bit toward a sweet tooth. I know some of us have had conversations, and I know that you identify that way too, but if you ask some of my family, they're more on the savory side. The Bible calls us to a certain kind of life, and Jesus tells us that we are the salt of the earth. But oftentimes we find ourselves looking at the chaos and we're not quite sure how we can be involved. And we really just, before we can be salt, we need a little bit of sweetness. And while that's not quite the formula that Jesus has called us to, there's one thing that I would just like to point out. Sugar decays and salt preserves. When I was in college and when I was in grad school, we would sit with our professors and we would dialogue about the developmental stages of faith. It's required, it is necessary for us to understand what is an appropriate expectation for an elementary student to understand about faith, about God, about this whole big experience we're trying to to get them excited about. What is appropriate at an adolescent level? What is appropriate at an early adult level? And what is appropriate at a post-early adult level? Up until the adolescent early adulthood when I was in school, I could identify very easily because those were my experiences and this, these were my benchmarks for the conversation. And now over the last handful of years that I've been pastoring, as I have been sitting in the trenches with people, as I have continued my study further and allowed scripture to become richer, I am allowing myself to dig back into the notes that I took about these other stages that were just theoretical to me. And as I reflect on these, these conversations, I dive into a new world, a new study, and a new perspective. I want to share with you just a few slivers of the context of Pastor Kayla's life that will be the grounds for the beginning of this next month's conversation. A few weeks ago in my high school Bible study, we were talking about a very confusing word, morality. And the questions that came up from our high school conversation, and I can talk about them because they're not here, were how much does morality affect our personality? Hmm. And how much does our personality affect our morality? This is a conversation that we're having in uh, in youth, and while you might not understand why or how they could be connected, at its basic level, let's get a few observations. We don't understand what the word means. And so it's very interesting because these set of rules and how you act, and if how you act is who you are, then transitive properties, are they the same? And so it's this thing that we're wrapping our head around might not be so complicated for you, or maybe it was never that complicated for you for whatever reason, but this is where we sit. 
our high schoolers are not quite sure what morality means and what personality is di- how pastor, per, how personality is different from that. Pray for me. Over the last few months, I have sat with a handful of us that have been tossed around through life. Every direction we've seen, and we're not quite sure how we're going to be keeping afloat. And if it's not you, it's one of the people in the pews next to you. Not quite sure how we can make it through our brokenness and how we are seeing hurt people hurt people and vicious cycles continuing and us not quite sure how we're going to break them. What do we do with such people. And then we come to this conversation and we recognize we are distinguishing ourselves from other. And then another little slice of the context in which we begin our conversation today. I have found out, unfortunately, and it is angering to me. I am very, very angry. Over the last year, I have it has been brought to my attention that two people who were at the seminary at the same time that I was have crossed boundaries that have caused them to be taken under authorities. And these are people that sat in the same Christ-centered spaces as I sat. And I think, how, why, Jesus, just go ahead and come. So I have this internal conversation in my, my head, and I acknowledge that there is this always swinging pendulum of the Christian experience. How do we navigate this world so that our experience can align with what God has said and promised to us, the blessing that he wants us to experience? Is it a morality over-explained? Some rules that would keep us on track, that would help us know how to act, help us know how to respond, help us know what to do in literally any God-given situation? but not rules so much that they no longer allow us to see grace, no longer allow us to feel the freedom that comes from the joy of living in Christ. Not so much grace, though, that anything that we do has little consequence because the cross will take care of it. So I sit here wondering, how are we supposed to act? What are we supposed to be? And what are we to do about this conundrum and tension? I I have shared this before. I grew up in a household with a mother who was a psych nurse. And so there were a lot of emotions overly explained and overly talked through and processed. There were a lot of just processing about how logic made sense and was sound. And there was a lot of awareness that happened at every point in my childhood. And having grown up the youngest of three, I saw and caught the patterns of what these conversations looked like earlier. And so now I'm speaking these words way beyond my years going, oh, what? Apparently that's how I feel. Apparently that's how this works. Apparently I'm making some observations and some claims about this thing called life that I'm living. Human behavior is usually divided between two very, very, very large generalities. Luck, you can come fact check me later, but I hope I can be general enough that you can say I'm in the clear. 
either you obey rules imposed from the outside, human behavior, here are the constructs in which we live, or you discover your deepest longings of your own heart and you just try to go with them and try to allow your life to align with that. And most of us teeter between these two. As Christians, oftentimes we, ob- oftentimes we obey at least some, at least some because we think that's what God wants for us, or it's at least the social norm, or we're, we're going to get something good out of this because God is good, so we'll follow this rule. But like if the speeding limit were just a little bit higher, wouldn't we all probably be okay with that, or how we navigate this as Christians is interesting, but we oftentimes meld the rules with pursuing our own goals and dreams. And I tell you this because as I sit here and I reflect on God and I reflect on his church and I reflect on his power, I reflect on our humanity and our shortcomings, I have to. I have to cling to the promise that God has blessing in store for me, for you, and for his people. Because without God, without this deep-seated worldview, when we look at the world today, where would our hope be? I remind myself of the promises that he has given us, and I remind myself of the endless amounts of blessings that I have been a beneficiary of. So I go back to scripture and I go back to my books and this is where we begin our conversation today. I read about this tension that we live in. How do we claim, how do we understand how we live in victory because of the proclamation that we make about our God? How do we understand and how do we live in victory Because of our identity as God's children, we have to believe it. We have to believe it. So then what happens now? Right after I believe, right after you believe, you and I sit as believers. We're standing on one side of the Christian experience, looking forward as Adventists. That's what that means. We are waiting the second coming And as we look forward to the other side of salvation, the part realized, the waiting game that we're playing, what do we do now? What do I do with this belief while I wait? I think that there is a story in Mark that we have heard that would offer some insight into this tension, into this question, and into what Jesus' call for us really is. And what that then means for our lives today. I invite you to the app. I invite you to the Bible in front of you or the Bible that you brought to you. To open your Bibles to Mark. Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to spend some time today. Mark chapter 10. Verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, this is Jesus, he's setting on a journey to Jerusalem. This story is in 
multiple Gospels, and so we can get a very good picture of all of it in a whole if you read them side by side. But we'll be in Mark today. As he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey to Jerusalem, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as we set up the scene for this encounter with Jesus, we have to make a few notes of observation. Any man who is distinguished enough to approach Jesus, and just by calling him a man that did it, it means he was, it would mean that within first century Jewish culture, they would not be running. Because first century Jewish men did not run. To run meant that you were aloof. To run meant that you had lost all of your sensibilities. To run meant you had no dignity. Because only the dignified would walk, which is why we have so many stories of Jesus walking. But because with every walk, as a Jewish man took a pace, there was wisdom, there was life, and there was an experience that was identified with each step. So the idea in and of itself that a man ran up and knelt before Jesus means that we're automatically creating a situation that is a little bit weird for biblical times experiences of anyone. He kneels down in front of Jesus and asks, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. The man said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then... Come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. The man asks the questions because it's this future reference. He wanted hope. He is an example of all of us as humans. He, like us, we believe that our present actions, this is what we've been taught since kindergarten. You do something, there is a reaction. There is a consequence. Especially because he's a first century Jew, he's thinking specifically of God's coming of the new age, the Messiah that they were all waiting for. The time when God would make the world and bring heaven and earth together at last. So he blurts out, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As we keep looking at this passage, we have to orient ourselves around some of these concepts that the first century Jews held. When they said eternal life, they do not mean heaven in the way that you and I think of this new world, new coming of heaven when we say eternity. They're not thinking of going to heaven in the way that you and I associate when we hear that phrase. To them, eternal life means the age to come. The time when God's kingdom is finally here. The time when they have the Messiah walking among them. When we hear this during the Christmas story year after year. The Jews were looking for an earthly king. The Jews wanted somebody who would liberate them from all the oppression that they had experienced. The one that would establish the new kingdom here in their midst. 
We know these two concepts of them looking for a human king and people thinking of eternity, but we don't typically associate them together. So this rich man abandons his senses and he runs to Jesus asking, when this new kingdom comes, how will I know? Can I be part of this? He's asking, what sort of person do I need to be so that when God rescues this sad and broken, sinful world, I can be a part of the promises? And if we read deeper into this question, the rich man is asking, how can that future reality shape the sort of person I'm becoming now? And it's a, a bold insight to read into. But he's asking, what do I need to do for eternal life? If that's my goal, what is the path that gets me there? I think it's a question that you and I face and another lofty term and concept that we as Adventists have loved to consider is how justification, sanctification, and glorification all play with each other. What do we need to do? How much is God doing? And we're kind of concerned about how much and how far will this take me and at what point can I ease up so that God's grace will cover and then I'll be in the clear. Our humanness and our linear thinking and our ability to wrap our heads around some of these concepts helps us to fall short. And so this psalm that Crystal read, make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your path. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I will wait all day long. It is a concept, it is something that we have long wrestled with in our lives. How are we supposed to behave? How do we find joy and happiness? But if we think a little bit more critically, how we behave and how we find joy and happiness are just byproducts of something else completely and entirely. If we can look into this a little bit more closely, we can if we can pinpoint that something else, then I think it will impact how we behave, how we find joy, and how we find happiness. This rich man's story, like I said earlier, is found in three Gospels. And along with many of the other first century Jews, they loved the promise, and they looked for God's promised age that would be ushered in. And they believed that it was for the loyal Jews. Those who were, would see the kingdom, those who would experience the kingdom, were for those who were loyal. So when he asks, what do I have to do, it's because he thinks there's something missing to the formula. But he knows if he's loyal, he will have access. And Jesus says, have you followed my commandments? But if you notice that list, they are the last six. For the Jews, it wasn't so much a cause and effect or because I was obedient, then I get this. I get salvation. I get eternity. For the Jews, this was built on the fact that God had an ancient agreement with his people. 
He had rescued them to be his people, and the law had outlined the terms of the agreement which they would demonstrate their gratitude toward him. And even though this man in our story had kept all these things, he still had an inkling that he was missing something. And Jesus agrees with him in this sentiment. There is more to this story. But it's not just a small nuance. It's not just another commandment that I'm going to add. It's not just another thing that I'm going to do or that you'll need to do. Jesus is going to take this man into a whole different concept. He's about to blow this guy's mind. Jesus has an answer. When he lists his commandments, those six that we see in the text, the man says, yes, I've done that. I do that. Since I was young, this is, this is how I am. This is who I am. So how are you telling me there's more, but tell me there's more? So Jesus tells him to sell his possessions, care for those who've been neglected by society, and Jesus says, follow me. And this is the part where Jesus comes back to those first set of commandments he didn't explicitly say to him. Honor God, put me first, follow me. This young man wanted fulfillment. In Matthew, this same story, when Jesus is responding to this man, Jesus says, if you want perfection, sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, and come follow me. And in Matthew, when we look at this word in the original language, perfect, some of us win, some of us go, here we go again, with that perfect language of us having to be a certain way, act a certain way, meet a certain standard. And I hope if that's the case, then we can ease our minds for just a moment. If you go back to the original language, perfect is one way of translating that. But whole is another way of translating that. Complete is another way of translating that. So if you want to be whole, if you want to be complete, sell your possessions, give to the poor, come follow me. This man is looking to be complete and he's looking to be whole. He wants that to be his presence so that the complete, he will be complete in the future. Jesus is suggesting that he needs to turn everything inside out. Jesus is saying, if you want to be a part of the larger kingdom, then you have to have an outward-looking purpose. That because of this thing that you have with me, because you are following me, your ability to see the need in front of you, the ability to react to the need in front of you, will change. You will see them first. You will put God's kingdom first. You will put your poor neighbor first before you will win fulfillment. Jesus is saying this is not just a small nuance when you ask me this question and I have an answer. Jesus is saying I'm not just clarifying the moral standard for just a little bit higher so that you can just do a few more things and reach it. Jesus is saying, take a journey of becoming a different sort of person altogether. Jesus is challenging the man to a transformation of character. And this man isn't up for it. He turns away and he leaves Jesus and he's sad. It says, 
the last verse of this story. When he heard this, he was shocked. And he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Like, oh, is that what I have to do? Well, oh man, I guess it's not for me. And it's funny because we, I, I oftentimes come to this, this passage in, in the middle of Christmas or in the middle of Thanksgiving and Christmas as we're looking for our good sales, as we're getting ready to give gifts, and as we remember that it's not actually about the things and the possessions. That during that season, as we lead up to, to the birth of baby Jesus, then we are putting him at the center of the story and not the gifts that culture has gotten us excited about. Don't get me wrong. You all know. I'll be the first to admit it. I love a good sale. I love a good sale. But Jesus is calling us to a transformation of character. And as I sit and I reflect on this tension that I illustrated at the beginning of this conversation today, it's character. I think we have lost a little bit on our ability to speak about this or what we say or how we say it. This young man isn't up for a change of character. This is where theory meets reality. Jesus, he asks, how do I do this? And Jesus told him, this is how you behave in theory. And then the man turns and goes, I don't know how to do that in practice. And I don't know if that's somewhere where we sit in the conversation as well. We like it in theory. We get it. We accept it. But not quite sure how we do this in our daily lives. This is interesting. This is complicated. And it's beautiful. How are we supposed to be the people who not only inherit the new kingdom of God that he is ushering in through Jesus, but how do we also join in right now and make it happen? I think this conversation about character has been lost. That character is something that God is going to build in you. That there is a Christian character. That when we say be you, we've also lost the idea that God has called you to be a certain thing too. Not that you aren't unique, just like everyone else. but that there is a Christian character that will allow us to be salt instead of sugar. Jesus is not saying, here are all the rules that you need to obey. But he's also not saying, the rules don't matter and just follow your heart. If you follow along in the Gospel of Mark, we'll look at these things over the next couple weeks. You'll see that how the stories are positioned give us some really good insight about what Mark is trying to say about what Jesus' call is. Because just a few verses down, we have James and John request of Jesus, can we sit at your right and your left hand? And Jesus says, it is not for me to grant. And so we have the ones who want to follow the the law so clearly that they miss the person that the law points to. And we have people who want to follow their hearts so clearly, who theoretically, and we know this, these are Jesus' disciples. This is James and John. We read about them everywhere else, and we would, we would say their hearts are for Jesus, but he tells them no. 
So this tension that we live in, Jesus says it's for those who are prepared. Can you imagine, like, walking up so ready, like, I worked so hard for this. I should deserve this. And you're like, Jesus, can I just, this one little thing? And he's like, oh, it's not for you. And so then we think, oh, then what do I do? And we set ourselves down this, this path. So this Sabbath, we reflect on the place that we stand in our faith experience. And we contemplate what it means to be a part of community, what it means to allow others to pour into us, what it means to be vulnerable, vulnerable enough that we can share space with others. I think that it boils down to character. How do we live in this tension? We allow transformation to happen. We allow God to say, turn yourself inside out. Here is what it means. Here is character. Character is not quite personality. Character is not quite a cookie-cutter box of just things that happen, and all of a sudden, you have it. So as we consider this normal conversation of, so much law or so much grace or where does the pendulum swing and how do you find a happy medium? I think the happy medium is actually character. That God would say, turn yourself inside out and let me build you. Yes, who you are becoming. Yes, who I am calling you to be. Yes, there are certain standards, but yes, there is joy and there is freedom. Character is saying, follow me. And I think as we think of all the different chaoses in our lives, I shared some with you, and you have a boatload for yourself. And you know it for you, or you know it for your friends, or you just turn on the news at any given point in time, and you know. And we think, has it been a slip of Christianity? Has it been, where is it the old ways? Do we need more law? Do we need more grace? I think we need more character, because character is virtue. And as those things grow, as you allow God to continue to transform you, I think this is how we can see a transformation go from sweet to salt. I'm going to invite the worship team back on stage. We reflect on this question, what do I do after I believe? This is where I am now. I'm waiting for salvation, but that does not release me from anything. What do I do now that I believe, now that I've been baptized, now that I have a profession of faith, now that I actually just have a conviction at all? What do I do now? Is that enough? And I would venture to say no. Because in James, if your faith isn't put into action, then what is it? But I don't want to have this basic law versus grace conversation. And so I think that if we start working on our character, and I think that if we start allowing God to work on our character, no, but this is who I am. No, but if you claim yourself as God, then would we have such a big deal allowing him to transform you? Maybe we need to start considering transformation 
when Jesus asks us, follow me, and not a transformation of acts. Like, we don't need to do better, even though we do. We don't need to be better, even though we do. The story in Mark helps us to see that following Jesus is a call to a type of character, to a type of integrity, to a life of virtue. And it's the following him that changes everything. So it's not about our task or our journey of doing more or being more. It's our task of allowing Jesus in more and allowing him to take hold of everything that you are. For the next few weeks, we are going to consider this conversation in character and how to build it in integrity and how to build it in virtue and how to build it because we as a people need it here. You don't sit on the other end of some of the conversations that we sit on in the pastoral team. We need it here. And we need it here so that we can go and affect out there. It is my prayer and it is my hope that this week there is something that we're not too high, mighty, pious, and righteous, that we can identify something to allow God to transform in these next few weeks. Something, anything, however big or however small. But that we are going to claim God's power, we are going to claim God's goodness, and we are going to claim God's blessing because we know that he can and we know that he will. This is our God. This is who we worship. And this is the blessing that we will get to experience when we can be the people that he actually created us. So I pray this over you, I bless this over you, and I claim his goodness over you. Amen.